I'm going to ask you all to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes as we begin a study today in the book of Ecclesiastes. We will be spending, I don't know, probably the next 12, minimum 12 weeks. Um, it, it could get a little bit more, but <clears throat> more likely than not, about 12 weeks in the uh, book of Ecclesiastes. So I'm going to begin our study this morning by reading our text. Our text is in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 of the book of Ecclesiastes. Listen, church, to the words of the living God. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun also goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around the wind goes, and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot endure it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Church, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Westminster Catechism asks this very important question. What is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the central purpose of man? And the answer to the Catechism is this, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What is man's main purpose? What is his primary purpose? Function, and that is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The book of Ecclesiastes is written for the person who rejects that statement. It is written for the person, for the one whose chief end is not to glorify God, whose chief end is to find happiness, to be secure, to be wealthy, to be significant, to be fulfilled. The one who, whose chief purpose is that their personal life would be prioritized, that ultimately they would be happy and they will seek very numerous ways of bringing about that satisfaction and that happiness. I would say it is also for the individual who affirmed that creedal statement, but whose heart and mind has succumbed to the siren call of self-fulfillment. So to the one who says, oh yeah, yeah, right, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, but they do not actually pursue that chief end. They actually pursue their own self-realization. And ultimately, though, regardless of where, hopefully nobody fits in either of those categories, the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, I'll 
provide in a few moments why we should study it, why Christians should study this book. But it is... um, it will be very instructive for us regardless of whether you adopt that creedal statement or not. I'm going to give the book away. What I mean is I'm going to give the sermon series away. And I'm going to begin at the end because the end tells us what this whole thing is about. In chapter 12, verse 13, here it is up on the screen for you all to read. Like I said, I'm giving the end away. The end of the matter... There it is, the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The author of Ecclesiastes, however, didn't just make that up. We find this throughout Scripture. We find it especially um, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 2. Listen to this. Uh, It's talking, now this is the commandment, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your sons and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes, his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life. And then over in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, we see the, the, the same thing. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you, but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you this day. The sum of life then is to fear God and to keep his commandments. What the author of Ecclesiastes is going to do is he's going to begin with the prevalence of vanity. And he is going to explore man's attempt to attain meaning in life. And he is going to explore all of man's attempts to obtain meaning in life. And then he's going to come to the end. But the end of the matter is this. All of those things, all of those attempts to find satisfaction, meaning, happiness, joy, fulfillment, all of those things are going to fall short. But the end of the matter is this. Fear God. Keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Let me describe just, I'll just be very upfront with you about this book. This is a dark book. I can't overemphasize how dark this book is. So I, I could probably go on for a few moments, minutes, trying to tell you how dark the book is. But once we get into this, even just today, we're going to see its darkness. And the author is going to take us to some extremely dark places, some deep chasms. And then he won't just have us look over the edge of these deep, dark chasms. He might even dangle us over the edge and then perhaps even let us go for a brief moment. And just before we plummet into this chasm of despair, he will grab us at the last minute. He will force us to look deeply at some really difficult issues. And here's the thing. The author does not seem to be naive. He seems to be speaking from a place of experience. In other words, he is no mere spectator of life's vanity. He has been a full participant in the futility of finding anything 
of satisfaction outside of fearing God and keeping His commandments. He is no beginner. He is fully immersed in all of the things that the world says, this is where pleasure is, this is where satisfaction is, this is where you can find fulfillment. He is no um, outsider looking in. He says, yeah, I've delved into all of it. More than all of y'all, I've been there. But the end of the matter is this. Fear God and keep His commandments is His final conclusion. So let me talk a little bit about the genre of this book. It is known, we would call this, it it falls into the genre of wisdom literature. Wisdom literature um, emphasizes the gaining of wisdom and understanding of all areas of life, including our relationship with God and others. And so wisdom literature is a very specific type of literature within the Bible. In the Bible, we have poetry and we have narrative and we have gospel and we have apocalyptic and we have epistles and we also have wisdom literature. And in wisdom literature, the... um, the emphasis is on the gaining of wisdom and understanding all areas of life, including our relationship with God and others. Typically, um, certain books have been set aside or designated as wisdom literature. Psalms and Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Job. In fact, the book of Proverbs begins in chapter 1, verse 7, says that the beginning of wisdom, it is wisdomless, it talks about the beginning of wisdom. What is the beginning of wisdom? And it talks uh, about that. And then, of course, our text uh, talks about the end of the matter. So we actually, we have the same author, the one who wrote Proverbs and the one who wrote Ecclesiastes. Um, We see the beginning and the end of all wisdom in these books. Now, here's one of the challenges with um, wisdom literature and particularly Ecclesiastes is that the trajectory of wisdom literature and Ecclesiastes in particular often veers from what we are accustomed to. Here's a graph of how most stories play out. This is how you and I, how many of you had a chance? Well, you don't need to raise your hand. But those of you who had a chance to read Ecclesiastes this week or recently or have read it, you probably thought a lot of times, like, what is this guy talking about? Where is he going? This doesn't seem to make sense. And we'll see that he actually, he does make sense. But it's like he's all over the place. Because we are used to seeing... This is how most stories play out for us. There's a setting, then there's conflict, there's a climax, resolution, and then a new setting. That's the typical way we will encounter a story. And, for instance, the the parable of the prodigal son would be a great example. There's the setting, right? There's a man and he's got a couple of sons. There's a conflict. The son doesn't like the way, you know, he wants his inheritance. There's the climax. His dad gives him... Uh, his money and he goes off and then he is in greater difficulty. There's a resolution. He comes back to his dad and his dad, you know, receives him back and then there's a new setting. Um, That's a classic example of 
how story we when we see movies and we read books and we um, watch videos, this is the classic way that a story is produced, and we those that makes sense to us because we're accustomed to it. So let me show you the structure of Ecclesiastes because it's not always a straight line. There's Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a journey and it can be frustrating to us who like that nice linear graph that I drew you. The author has a point. Some of you may be reading and have read it and go, this guy doesn't seem to, he just seems to be all over the place. Well, he is all over the place. He takes the scenic route. That's the best I can say. He takes the scenic route and he's not afraid to stop somewhere and pause for a while and then go in a completely different direction. He has a point and he masterfully makes that point, but not in the way that you and I are accustomed to. We are challenged by the book of Ecclesiastes because we, and maybe even sometimes discouraged a little bit or challenged by it, by this theme of vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I'm going to spend a little bit of time in just a minute talking about that, but let me introduce that theme and then we'll come, come back to it. We see this phrase repeated over and over again, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. But the fear of God is, and the fear of God is both the beginning and end of wisdom of the life of purpose. But if we are to know God and if we are to fear God, the author of Ecclesiastes explores all the emptiness of life without him the absence of fulfillment from all other means, and he will show us the degradation of man to highlight the splendor of God. So he's going to take us to dark places in order to make the brightness and the brilliance of God even more profound. And so this idea of vanity of vanities, all is vanity, he is going to show us the degradation of a life without God to highlight the splendor and the beauty and the brightness of God. Ecclesiastes is a stark assessment of a life without God. Well, you might wonder, well, this is a pretty dark book. It's rather bleak. And if it's for the person who rejects the wisdom of God, I'm not that person, why should I study it? Well, that's a good question. Why should I study it? I'm going to give you a number of reasons why I actually took these from um, Philip Ryken in his book, Why Everything Matters, and I would recommend the book highly if you are interested in a book on Ecclesiastes. It's thin. It's not this big tome. It's thin. It's small. It's easy to read, and it is uh, it's an awesome book. But Dr. Ryken uh, talks about a number of reasons why we should study the book of Ecclesiastes. And, and 
One is that it's an honest assessment of the difficulties of life. It's an honest assessment of the difficulties of life. It addresses the frustrations of life, the drudgery of work, the corruption of government, the dissatisfaction of pleasure, etc. It assesses those things. I mean, let's face it, we can have... um, Come into church and we smile and say, yeah, everything's good. But meanwhile, work is really dissatisfying and mundane and boring. And our boss is a jerk and we're, we're frustrated with the corruption of the government and all of these things. But, and Ecclesiastes is an honest assessment. It's not ignoring those things. It's an honest assessment of those things. A second reason why we will benefit from the study of the book of Ecclesiastes is because it helps us understand what happens if we choose what the world offers over what God gives us. If we decide that the the, the wisdom of the world is what I'm going to adopt rather than what God has given to us, we are going to see um, the, the consequences of that. The author, another third reason is that the author asks big questions and he doesn't provide the Sunday school answer, right? So the Sunday school answer goes like this. What's brown, furry, and has four feet? And people might say, and a long tail, and people say, well, it's a, you know, it's Jesus. That's the Sunday school answer. The answer is a squirrel. But in Sunday school, we just answer everything with Jesus, That's the Sunday school answer. We won't get away with that in Ecclesiastes. The author will not let us. He's going to ask hard questions, big questions. What is the meaning of life? Does God care? Why is there injustice? And he will not permit the Sunday school answer. He's going to make, he's going to force us to look at those questions and answer them honestly. He will make us uncomfortable. A fourth reason is that understanding the book of Ecclesiastes will help us to worship the one true God because we are going to encounter God. We will see Him brilliantly and we are going to encounter Him as the sovereign God. We will see Him as the creator God and we will see Him as the infinitely wise God. The world perpetuates its wisdom And we buy into it sometimes. But the book of Ecclesiastes is going to demonstrate the foolishness of that and the ultimate and infinite wisdom of the sovereign creator God. So we will learn about God and we will learn much about God. And then finally, I will say this. I have come to the conclusion that perhaps Ecclesiastes is the most practical book in the Bible. Let me repeat that. Ecclesiastes is likely the most practical book of the Bible. At least until I get to another book. But one author states, Ecclesiastes stands as the ultimate critique of secular humanism. That is, secular humanism is that worldview that celebrates human reason, rationalism, reject the rejection of divine revelation, the rejection of supernaturalism, the, the thinking that exalts and the enlightenment principle of the authority of the individual over the religious community, over the, uh, the community of family. It is where the individual sets the terms of his life and Ecclesiastes 
is perhaps the ultimate critique of that thinking. Because, well, we'll get there. All right, so there's a a little bit of introduction. Let's um, get ourselves into the book and let's first of all begin with this first verse. and, And with it, we'll briefly look at the author. Who is the author? Well, it tells us. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. I, I, I likely will spend a little bit more time unpacking um, authorship next week. Um, but here it is. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Most students of the Bible have ascribed this to Solomon. He is the preacher. And I want to talk about that word preacher. And I'm not going to get in. It's, it's actually very interesting Hebrew word and its roots and its foundations is, is fascinating and I, I won't bore you with that if, if, so I know some of you are always interested in that you can talk to me afterwards and I'll be happy to bore you with the origins of this word but this idea of preacher carries with it the, the meaning of one who speaks to the gathered community one who speaks to the gathered community And so he is less the teacher in the classroom and more the pastor over a church. So he is not simply dispensing information, even wise information, but he is leading people to green pastures. So he is the preacher. And he is not just saying, here's a bunch of wisdom, I hope you get it, but actually he's leading his congregation. He's leading the sheep that he's been entrusted with to green pastures. And so um, the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, likely this is Solomon. And then we look at verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Well, gee, I wonder what the main theme of that verse is. This is really the main point of the entire book. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This is the theme of the book. If you wanted to summarize the book, this would be fair. And, and I want to talk about this, this word vanity. It is, it's, it's important. I've got it up on the screen, and it's the Hebrew word hevel. It's actually a soft B, like a V, hevel. And Hevel um, literally has the idea of a mist or a vapor, something that is transient, fleeting, temporary. Psalm 144 uses this word, man is like a breath. There it is, breath. Man is Hevel. He's here temporarily. James chapter 4 verse 14 likely took instruction from Solomon in Ecclesiastes and in James chapter 4 verse 14, a very famous verse. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You are a mist. Your life is a mist. It is like a... Our temperatures are changing. I don't know if it's gotten cold enough to see our breath. But when it gets cold enough... Go outside, breathe, and you see your breath for a moment, and then it disappears. That's Hevel. It's transient. It's fleeting. It's here for a moment, and then it's gone. 
It's interesting, the first time we actually see this word in the Bible, um, it's used as a personal, uh, a personal noun. One of the children of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Hebel. He was transitory. He was a breath, fleeting. His life was short. Well, that's the, the literal meaning. The literal meaning is mist or breath, and it's translated that way. But it, like, like all language, it takes on broader um, nuances as we go through. And we, we see this word hevel being used to speak of that which is worthless or pointless or of little value. For instance, idols are called hevel. That is, it's not that they are missed or that they are transitory, but that they are empty, that they are pointless, that they are meaningless, that they have no value whatsoever. And so, emptiness, emptiness, all is emptiness, says the preacher. Pointless, pointless, says the preacher. Everything is pointless. You encouraged? <laughs> I told you this. We only get to verse 2 and we hit the darkness. I told you the book was dark. Like I said, idols are hevel. Man is hevel. Transitory, pointless, useless. And then we will note the repetition, vanity of vanities. One of the ways that we make a superlative in the Hebrew is that we double the word. So the way we make a superlative and I, I tried to find a good definition, and I couldn't find a good definition. So I'll just describe. So what's a superlative? Well, we would say, um, she is fast, she is faster, she is fastest. To form a superlative, we include an EST at the end of a word. That is the, the extreme. That person is fast, faster, fastest. That is the, the, the peak of fastness. The ideal of speed is conveyed in the word fastest. To form a superlative in the Hebrew, one way to do it is to double it. Like saying, hevel, hevel. It is the vanity of vanity. It is the supreme of vanities. It is the ultimate of vanities. Um, But we're used to that, right? We have a book in the Bible called... Song of Songs. What is that? That's the songiest of songs. Right? Or the Holy of Holies. What is that? It's the holiest. It's, it's contrasted with the holy place. The Holy of Holies is the holiest. There's the EST. Is the holiest of the places. Of the holy places. Or Jesus is what? King of Kings. Lord of Lords. What does that mean? It means that He is the King above all kings. He is the kingiest of the kings. So, when we're talking, when, the, when, when Solomon, the preacher, is saying, vanity of vanities, this is the ultimate, the peak of emptiness. The peak, the peak of pointlessness. All is pointless. His point is going to be this, that life under the sun does not ultimately satisfy. All of our pursuits fail. We are here today and gone tomorrow. This is a bleak theme. 
And the author isn't going to leave us there. He's going to take us even further. He's going to take us further than you and I want to go. But this is where we're going. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? Nothing changes. Everything is the same as it ever was. And now the preacher is going to begin to support his claim that everything is pointless. He has just made this claim. Everything is pointless. And now he's going to support that claim. And he's going to begin with what I've titled the, or what I've called the profit motive. What does a man gain? This is this idea of gain has is, is a business term, and it speaks of it speaks of a profit. That is, um, that one aspires to have something left over. That after you have met all of your expenses, you have something left over. And he's saying, what does a man profit by all the time? At the end of his life, what does a man profit? What does he have at the end? After he's done everything and he's paid out all of the expenses, does he have anything left over? Does he have something to show for after paying all of his expenses? After a man has toiled under the sun, what is left over? What does he have to show for it? What is his profit? In all the pluses and minuses of life, a person's balance sheet indicates a zero balance, perhaps even a negative, is the preacher's standpoint. After all of the pluses and minuses, once he distributes and pays off all of his debt, at the end of his life, his balance sheet shows nothing. I think Jesus picks this up. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? That's, I'm sure the preacher Solomon is going, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his very soul? Vanity of vanities. All of that was vanity. You gained everything and you lost your soul. That was pointless, meaningless, valueless, nothing. You didn't profit. Another great example in the New Testament is there was a guy who built a barn and he, he had so many crops that he built a barn and then the text tells us this, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. The man has barns, he has grains and wealth, but his divine balance sheet indicates that he is bankrupt. Vanity of vanities, all was vanity. He had nothing to profit. He had showed no profit whatsoever. He gained the world and he lost his soul. And the preacher would say, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This word under the sun is a key phrase in this uh, book of Ecclesiastes and, and we'll get into it at the, at, towards the end of uh, the message today because we pick it up again. But just kind of keep that and it will be important for us. So vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all of vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And now he's going to give us evidence that all is vanity. And the first thing he is going to do is he's going to give us four examples. Oh, I think I said, I think I said five. Oh, it's four or five. One, two, three, four. Yeah, there's four. Forget that. 
There's four um, creation. He's going to go to creation and show that um, he, his state, here's his thesis statement. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And now he's going to go to creation to give evidence to his thesis statement. And the four examples is generations, sun, wind, and stream. So let's look at generations and look at this. What does the profit of man to gain, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. So he, he, here's the idea of generations. They come and they go. Actually, the way he puts it is they go and they come. They start, he starts at the end and a new one takes its place and then they become the old generation and they pass away in a new generation and nothing really changes. Every generation believes that they are going to be the ones that are going to change the world. And we often say that. You're the generation. You're going to change the world. You, it is through you that the future lies. And let's face it, that's a just basic truism that the future does belong to the younger generation. It doesn't belong to those of us aging. We're getting ready to, we're nearer to checking out than checking in. But you will be the ones who are going to make a real difference. You're the ones who are going to change things. You're the ones who are going to make a better life. You're the ones who are going to fix everything that is broken. It is through the future of the, it is through this new generation. You will be the ones who make any real difference. The future is with the younger generation. But here's what happens. Pretty soon, this younger generation becomes the older generation. And the cycle continues. This younger generation whom we said, oh, everything's going to run through you. You are going to change things. Pretty soon, they become the old generation. And they realize that we really didn't fix a whole lot of stuff. There's still injustice and greed and racism and pride and violence. Shocking behavior remains. But here comes another generation. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. I meant to bring in a big rock from outside. The earth remains. If I had a rock... I would hold it up and say, before you were born, whoever's the oldest person in our church, before you were born, this rock existed. It was here before you. And when you go home to see the Lord, after that, this rock will continue to exist and it will be here. When you are forgotten and generations and generations have gone by and your name is completely forgotten, this rock remains. That's the preacher's point. The rock remains and you're forgotten. But a new generation has come and they think they're going to fix everything and they don't. And the rock remains. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Pointless, pointless. I think about... I think about my great-grandfather... The reason I think about him is because I don't know him. I'm sure somebody told me a little bit about him, but I don't know anything, really anything about him. I know a little bit about my grandfather and my grandmother on my dad's side. Nothing really about those on my, my grandparents on my mom's side. Here it is just a few generations later, and I have no idea who this man and his wife were. I know nothing of them. 
That's the preacher's point. After a few generations, you're gone and nobody remembers. Dark enough for you? That's only his first example. Then he talks about the sun. The sun rises and it sets. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it goes. It rises and sets. Its movement is repetitive, but it is not progressive. Like the unprofitable life, it never advances. It is the same as it ever was. My, my generation, well, there's a very well-known book by um, Ernest Hemingway, The Sun Also Rises. He got that from Ecclesiastes. I was thinking about all of the music that at least I grew up with and how common this theme was, is. <clears throat> Nothing really matters Anyone can see, nothing really matters to me. Yeah, you know it. We're all just dust in the wind. You run and you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking, racing around to come up behind you again. The sun is the same in a relative way. Shorter of breath, one day closer to death. I don't know about new music, if they picked up this theme. I assume so, because it is so common. The sun rises and the sun sets, but it never advances. It's the same as it ever was. The Talking Head song. And it hastens to its place, literally it pants, as though the sun is weary as it goes to its place. It breathes of weariness, and then it just does the same thing over and over again. It never advances, it never reaches a destination. It just comes up behind you again, and you're just one day older. And you die, and it keeps going. The wind is the same way. As the sun goes from east to west, here the, the preacher says the, sun, the wind comes from north to south, which would have been um, very familiar in the uh, uh, Middle Eastern area. And so the sun goes from east to west, and the wind goes from north to south. Perhaps the, the author is poetically saying that the entirety of all of creation is vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And what is freer than the wind? But the wind just returns to its routine, circuits around and around, and it never reaches its destination. Streams, same thing. Perhaps he has the Dead Sea in mind. The Dead Sea has no outlet, and the Jordan River and all of its tributaries run into the Dead Sea, and it never gets full, even though it doesn't have an outlet. So, summary. Just of these verses, there is an abundance of activity, but no progress. You may toil under the sun for a few years, and then you will be forgotten. But the sun and the wind and the rivers will continue, and they will never notice that you were here. Are you depressed yet? <laughs> Getting there. Hang with me. I swear this will end <coughs> well. 
But this is what the preacher does. He's going to paint this place. Like I said, he's going to paint the picture so bleak, so dark. And he's going to hang us over this chasm of despair. Let us go until we think, oh, we're lost. And then he's going to grab us and pull us back. He, he is a very purposeful author. And now the author brings in human experience. Same as it ever was. Instead of creation, he's going to use human experience. Like I said, the preacher is going to take us farther than we want to go. And if you think that he has made his depressing point clear, he goes on. Another good song from my upbringing, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Is there anything new? Look at this. He says, All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with hearing. Seeing, hearing, and speaking. We fill our days with sharing our truth, hearing the cacophony of others, of other voices, and being visually stimulated, yet it is never enough. How relevant this is to us today as residents of the information age. Never before have we had so access to so much stimula- stimulation, visuals, outreach, forums for our input, and yet satisfaction is never Achieved. We wake up, we check our social media, we turn on the news, we continue to bloviate, we think that our opinions uh, are going to change everything, and we, and we take in one more episode, we play one more game, and we level up only to seek the next level, to troll another website, and the eye and the ear and the mouth are never satisfied. There's nothing new. What has been is what will always be. Ultimate meaning is not found. And you might be thinking, yeah, but there's always these new inventions, but ultimate meaning is not found in the new invention. I'll give you an example. I don't know how long ago, but a long time ago, at least relatively speaking, there was a thing called iPhone 1. And it was going to revolutionize communication. But it never fixed our fragile communication. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been a new version, too. And now I think we're on version 14. It's just new technology for an old problem. We are anticipating the new, new version. We stand in line. We're eager to spend $1,000, but we are no closer to one another. We are not communicating better with one another. We are not nearer to one another. We not, have not bridged that gap between us and them. I'm, I'm no closer to my wife because of my phone. I can, keep, I can tell her where I'm at. I can share with her a lot of information. But I still say stupid things, foolish things, misunderstood things. And I can get a new phone and it won't fix that. We desire something extraordinary to change our lives and to change the world. Maybe technology or if I get a new wardrobe or a new pair of shoes or a new activity or a different vacation or a new job or a new relationship, that will fix things. And the preacher says, yeah, no. You might think, yeah, but what about... There's got to be something. Folks, there will always be regular advancements in in culture and technology. 
medicine would be a great example. Uh, the technology that we have in medicine now is amazing, but the new technology just simply addresses an ancient problem. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Plus change, plus la même chose. I don't speak French, you can tell. But the more things change, the more they stay the same. All right. I don't want you to go out of here utterly destroyed. There may be times when we do. But I do want to talk a little bit about this phrase, under the sun. Because we see it frequently, we see it twice in our passage, and we'll see it over a dozen more times in the book of Ecclesiastes. There is nothing new under the sun. I hope you feel the weight of the argument. I hope you feel what the preacher's been doing because he's got you exactly where he wants you. That's exactly where he wants you to be. He wants you to see the bleakness. He wants you to see the despair. He wants you to see how dark everything is. And then he wants you to see it even darker. If that's where you are, you are exactly where the preacher wants you. He wants you to feel that. This word, under the sun, is a key phrase mentioned over a dozen times in this book. Ultimately, Ecclesiastes is a hope-filled book. Hope-filled book. Under the, the phrase, under the sun, helps us to find that, assist us in that hope. It is under the sun that we experience this futility, this pointlessness. Church, there's a God in heaven, not under the sun. And the God in heaven who is not under the sun, who rules over the affairs of man. The preacher calls us to fear that God. The one who is not limited by the realm under the sun. The one who is exalted above all things. The one who holds all things under the sun in his mighty hand. He is the one that the preacher is pointing us to. He is showing the bleakness of everything under the sun to make brilliant the one in heaven who is not under the sun. And this one does a new thing. We just got done saying, there is nothing new. Ah, but the one who is above the heavens, who is not limited by the realm of under the sun, he does a new thing. And the new thing he does is not temporal, like a generation coming and a generation going, and the sun rising and the sun setting. And it's not temporal, but it is eternal. It is lasting. It is unfading. Folks, there is a new covenant, and it is truly new. It is a covenant that is entirely kept by God alone. It is not a covenant that is simply an institution grounded in human ability. It is in Christ alone, who, by the way, lives forever. Christ is not part of the generation who comes and goes and then is forgotten. No, Christ lives forever. And in this new covenant, that I'll describe in just a second, in this new covenant, one of the things we discover is that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They don't just keep cycling through this repetitive cycle of never getting anywhere, but they actually have a goal and a destination, and they are for his people. I love what, first Peter, what Peter writes in his first, first letter. 
Listen to the salvation, the results of the new covenant, and note the eternal and lasting statements in contrast to what we saw in the book of Ecclesiastes, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. Well, it begins with um, how we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from, a de- from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Why? Because it's unfading. It's imperishable. It's not part of this endless cycle. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Yeah, you live under the sun. I think of the old covenant, the law. The law was like the sun and the wind and the waves. They never, it never makes any progress. Man sins and he brings a sacrifice. He goes to the temple and he tries to keep the law. Don't covet. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. And he tries and he can't. And so he offers a sacrifice and thinks maybe this is going to do it. And then he finds himself right back in that cycle. And he never achieves the, uh, the holiness that he aspires to and that God has called him to. He never gets there. And so he just goes back and he offers another sacrifice and another sacrifice. And then he finds himself in the same old sin and he keeps doing the same thing over and over again. Lord, have mercy on me. Who can deliver me from this bond of death? Vanity of vanity. All is vanity. We could not keep God's commands. Priests and pious individuals developed new means to help us, but they just could give us more laws and we'd return like a dog to the vomit. We could never fix it. And then a new thing happened, a truly new thing, a new covenant. God put on flesh and dwelt among us and lived with us and did for us what we could not do ourselves, making us truly new, making us new creations, born again. You need to be born again. No, you don't need to go back into your mother's womb and be born a physical person. You need a heavenly life, and I have the ability to give that to you. It is not one where you need to strive over and over and over again and then offer another sacrifice. I am the sufficient sacrifice. I am the new sacrifice. It is sufficient. It is complete. It has reached its destination. It doesn't just get cycled over and over again. This new thing, God putting on flesh and dwelling amongst us and for us, doing for us what we can never do ourselves, making us truly new, born again. Folks, this is not life under the sun. The preacher is going to take us to depths of despair to highlight the glorious God who is not limited to being under the sun. He points us forward to the new creation. Behold, I am making all things new, Revelation 21.5. I'm doing a new thing. I'm going to make a new heaven and a new earth and it will be forever. I'm doing that. The new heaven and the new earth, the weariness of this creation gives way to the new creation. And I pray that this would create for us a desire for what God has created us for. Church, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his soul?
Welcome to the book of Ecclesiastes. Our Father God, 